Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for finding the Toronto Today podcast for November the 1st. Yeah, 11th month of the year already. And coming off, uh, I think most of us a bit bit of a high. Halloween was that. We had good weather, dry weather, okay, two years ago. Uh, they, w- I think we are going to move Halloween because the weather was so crappy. You can't cancel Halloween. You can cancel some of the costumes. I'll say that. But we'll talk about that out of the gate and what a good evening it was. And maybe, maybe a big step forward and maybe an outright rejection of some of the guidelines that are meant to, I wouldn't say divide us, but keep us safe, but they're not necessarily practical or science-based. We'll talk about the TDSB teacher that showed up at school speaking of uh, uh, Halloween costumes that could, should be moved out and probably never should have existed in the first place. Blackface for a TDSB teacher on Friday, and it just seemed fine for a good chunk of the day until students started speaking up, taking pictures, telling their parents. We'll talk about that. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, infectious disease specialist, Ian Mendez, who's headed to Chicago for Senators Blackhawks tonight. That's not your normal NHL game because it's the first home game for the Blackhawks since an awful lot has happened Wednesday evening with the Kyle Beach Rick Westhead interview. All that coming up in Dr. Eric Cam as well. Check out the Toronto Today podcast. It's next. I saw this yesterday with regard to Halloween. I think Halloween went amazing last night. We're going to talk to Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, bottom of the hour. Uh, he's an infectious disease specialist. And, uh, and, and he said, what an amazing night. He's got two little kids under the age of six. And listen, when you got kids that are my age, that are um, my kids' age, not my age, but um, if you've got kids my age, you're in your 70s. If you've got kids that are 15 and 13, you look and say, the runway's ending for Halloween. It's not quite the same thing. They both did costumes at certain points during the week, but one collected some candy last night. The other just kind of wandered around uh, looking for trouble, uh, I think. And I'm not, I don't know if he found it, um, but he, he, he was looking for it. I think that's the case, the 15-year-old. He went out looking for uh, looking for some trouble. Um, but nonetheless, you do realize what was missed last year and what we've missed a ton with all our kids. That said, um, I'm sure it wasn't quite the same in every single neighborhood. I'm sure there are causes for concern. There are two people that brought up the fact that a lot of bowls, a lot of candy bowls were just put out onto you know um, a porch or just left outside a door. And there's a little bit of an honor system happening, right? Take a, take a couple mini chocolate bars. Take a chocolate bar and take something else. You're risking life and limb, by the way, uh, with a riot in your in your uh, at your house at your doorstep. If you're giving full size chocolate bars out in a giant bowl and you say like just take one, because eventually something's going to kick off there with eight or nine teenagers, and there's going to be you know fisticuffs over coffee crisp or Arrow or Kit Kats if they're full if they're full size. That's the big distinction to make. You're trying to be generous and benevolent, but you're going to start wanton random violence in your neighborhood. It's important to note that. But I thought about this yesterday, um, and I saw this actually from uh, the excellent Catherine McDonald. Catherine McDonald, you'd see on Global News, she's a Toronto crime reporter, but her tweet kind of stuck with me, and uh, and I wondered if there were people feeling this way. Overheard this morning at my sports club. Catherine McDonald goes to a sports club. Uh, quote, are you going to hand out candy tonight? And here's the, here's the comment that I think she heard from another, um, person, a parent, um, an adult. I have lots of candy and my house is decorated, but I hear there's a COVID outbreak at public school. And I couldn't tell from the tone of the tweet, whether, um, you know, Catherine's sort of rolling her eyes. I mean, I did a little bit because I'm well aware that not everybody's going through the same thing at the same time with COVID. Of course, that's not true. And some people, you know, maybe you you were forced to isolate. Maybe you your school did have a couple cases and your kid came home. I don't think there's any documented school closures in Toronto again now. I think we've had two. And one of them was, of course, Silverthorne Collegiate. And that got cleared up within a seven day span. But it got me to thinking. That just not everybody's got it. Not everybody's listening to the same information, and I'm not. I'm not dismissing Catherine is uh, because she's in the plugged into the news industry. But as she's documenting, you you'll go somewhere here, a pair, and you'll be like, where do you get that information from?" Like you do understand how this virus works, and you should understand it a lot more than even a year ago at this time. And I'll double down on that. Even a year ago at this time, you had a sense that outdoors were very very safe compared to indoors. 
I mentioned before six o'clock, I think we made a massive mistake saying don't take your kids out trick-or-treating because I think it encouraged people to be indoors on a on a kind of a it was, I remember it being a chilly or rainy or Saturday night that Halloween was last year. So everybody just packed up inside whammo and again it's pre-vaccination schools are are rolling full blast as we go into november and there was uh, an uptick in cases okay but remember now also two things cases now aren't cases then many people still have to test they're fully vaccinated they're asymptomatic and they have to test for work or they have to test to travel or they want to test because they're planning on either of those things and need to be somewhere, need to be going from point A to point B. So uh, a test in itself and a fully, excuse me, a case in its, you know, at its greatest essence is not exactly what it was last year where it was cause for concern. And we already know that the cause for concern with cases varied on who you were, how old you are, what's, what's your health status, do you have any comorbidities, what's your age, all those things factored in. Dr. Kieran Moore laid this out two weeks ago, about three weeks ago, as a matter of fact, laid this out when it came to advice. This is, you know, what I saw when I think about all the boxes that this advice would check. I saw very little of this, but I don't think it mattered. I understand he's in public health, so he has to lay guidelines like this out. But this is how he suggested last night should go. Halloween is also around the corner, and I know our kids are eager to fill up their bags and pillowcases with candy. So I did want to share a few measures that people should consider as they prepare for Halloween. Trick or treating should take place outdoors as much as possible. Be creative. Fashion a face covering into your Halloween costume design. But remember, a costume mask is no substitute for a proper face covering. Do not overcrowd the doorsteps. Take turns and keep interactions brief. Maintain physical distancing as much as possible. Okay, um, a lot of that happened last night. Some of it didn't. Uh, I, I had teens crowding the door, no doubt about it. Uh, most of them were in costumes. Some of them come in packs of seven or eight or nine, and, and you're at the door for a little while. I even wore a mask at the door. I don't usually do that, uh, but I found this giant uh, really creepy. I found two masks at uh, Dollarama uh, yesterday in the morning around 10 o'clock. One was a panda bear, and the other was a black cat with whiskers uh it's you look like a giant you know human cat some kind of science experiment gone wrong you don't look like a cat or a panda bear but i wore the mask anyway because i thought now I, i did frighten one toddler there's no doubt about that I came to the door with the panda mask on and this uh two year old dressed as uh as what what do you call it the gremlin the gremlin that's not a gremlin a little uh gizmo i I dressed as gizmo was like two years old uh, she was not having me as panda bear, right? So I lifted up my mask. I showed, hi, I'm a real human person. She cried even harder. So I don't know what that's about. But either way, um, yeah, there's going to be, cr- there was crowding in the doorstep. There was uh, talking. We didn't get to the, uh, the the audio that was that became rather infamous with Dr. Moore saying, listen, maybe kids could not be, be you know, saying trick or treat out loud. Maybe they could whisper it. Like, I. I get it, and you get it, and as I always say, if you're listening to talk radio, period, probably regardless of, of any sort of you know slant or or predilection you might have about about politics or how you feel, you're you're further ahead of the curve than someone who's not paying attention to anything. I'm not criticizing those people. That sounds quite blissful, to be perfectly honest. I pay attention to nothing going on in the news. That sounds. That sounds amazing some days, okay? It does. But when when you lay that, when you have a guy who's, you know, very respected, huge position, the chief medical officer of health, and he lays out that it's more dangerous to speak out loud outdoors, outdoors, than it is to whisper trick or treat, you're going to make people, some some of that population, that will filter around, that information and guidance will filter around, and people will believe there's actually something dangerous about talking outside. We're way past the looking glass on that. We're way through the looking glass on that. I said the same thing in the spring, and it's still true. If you close you know, playgrounds for a day, and you close golf courses for five weeks, and tennis courts for five weeks, and pickleball for five weeks, and, and you just tell people, hey, just go for walks, for 35 straight, that's your exercise. There's no gyms open. This is your exercise. Go for walks or runs for 35 straight days. How's that suit you? 
you are going to make people believe there's something scary about being outside. You're going to make some parents frightened that their kids could pick up COVID from a slide at a playground or the monkey bars or anything like that. Or again, a t- you're going to make adults worry about a tennis racket or tennis. Remember, tennis started way back in the summer of 2020. And the advice was, hey, you know, pardon the phrase, bring your own balls. Just play with you. Just serve with your balls. Right. Greg on three tennis balls. And those are the balls you serve with. No one should pick up your tennis balls. So that's where we were with advice. It's not, I understand it has to be erring on the side of caution, but the whispering thing was was never going to take. And I'm just glad. I think last night wasn't an outright rejection of public health guidelines, but it did make me think. It gave me a lot of pause for thought. All right, our next guest in heavy rotation uh, when it comes to epidemiologists, infectious diseases, physicians. Uh, I like putting... Like putting smart ones on. I like putting practical ones on. He is Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. It's great to have you in this morning. Let's talk about uh, last night. It, it it felt like a win. I know you mentioned it via your social media. What a what a good night Halloween was. Uh, your kids had their first ever Halloween because they didn't go out last year. Uh, I I think we can be a little bit victorious and celebratory for how well it went for all of us. Yeah, we haven't. And, you know, I, I will uh, admit, uh, uh, perhaps a small well of a tear came into my eye just seeing, uh, you know, my kids uh, so excited about that candy. It brought me back to the 80s when I did the same thing. And, you know, I think that the big thing that I saw is really community coming together, people being happy. Uh, you know, yeah, there was the odd uh, person wearing a mask here and there, like the medical mask. But for the most part, people were really happy to do this for the kids. The kids loved it. Uh, there was energy in the air again. My community and uh, my street got back together. Mm-hmm. It was nice. And just, you know, I, I hope to see more and more of this stuff going forward. I'm sort of, you know, I'm trying to, you know, there's nothing we can do about the past. There never is. So I'm trying to, you know, be optimistic about what Halloween was for kids and, and, you know, families and and parents of young kids like yourself. I'm, you know, my kids are in the twilight of their Halloween year. So they both went out one, I think trick or treat and the other just wandered around uh, to see what happened. I'm hoping he's not, not doing that in five years when he's supposed to be in university class, <laughs> but whatever. Um, but nonetheless, like I'm trying to be like happy it's here this year and not worry about what wasn't last year or what Christmas wasn't last year. And, and, it's tricky, right? But uh, but I think, you know, you got to have that balanced approach to look at. We just have to accentuate the positive sometimes. If we drown in our own bad thoughts uh, for the last 20 months, we don't get anywhere. I agree with you. And I think that was part of the thing with the, with the uh, the Halloween this year, just kind of understanding what was going on, feeling it, like getting back into that spirit that we haven't had in two years. And I'll tell you something. I think that, of course, we all know we're a social species, good to get together, but I forgot how much I missed it, just these little things. And uh, yeah, you know, I think a lot of good has happened in this uh, fourth wavelet, we'll call it. I think it just, especially in Ontario, gives us some, some uh, um, cause for hope going forward. And I think that's what we all need need right now going forward and going into the light uh, as uh, things will really, really start to get better, I think, in, in, in uh, the coming months. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, our guest, when we would talk in the summer, even June, July, early August, and we talk about our vaccination rate, which was great, and and uh, fortifying our, our neighborhoods and our communities with, with high vaccination levels, and we, you and I would talk about Delta, um, clearly it was something to keep an eye on, but I would say that of the people that, that I talked to on the radio, like yourself, I wouldn't say you were one of the ones least concerned by it, but but you didn't see a doom and gloom September. No one's doing a victory dance. No one's, you know, mission accomplished, not by any stretch of the imagination. But what were the things you saw? I, I guess I, I'd ask that didn't make you stress like others did about where we'd be with cases and hospitalizations and, and maybe even locking down again. I never saw it and you didn't either. Yeah, I would say that, um, of course, I agree with you. There's no victory lap here. Just things that I was thinking. Uh, first of all, I think that uh, at that point in time, I forget the exact number. We were approaching like 70% of people uh, vaccinated with two doses. And, you know, mm-hmm. you think to yourself, that's going to be a big wall of immunity. That's the one thing. The other thing that I think that really uh, set me off is uh, working in Peel. We have a very concentrated amount of COVID transmission that was occurring. And if you took out the GTA from the third 
third wave, for example, there wasn't that much activity around the rest of the province. There was, but it was very, very quick. Not this ongoing transmission that's been there the entire pandemic. And that made me think, you know what, I bet you there's a significant amount of post-infectious immunity in this population that's so concentrated. I think putting those two things together, I was really wondering, maybe we'll see a wavelet. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. And I happen to be right. I might not be right in a couple of weeks, couple of months, but the point is I do think we have a significant amount of immunity and that's what we're seeing with this blunting uh, in the fourth wave. Yeah, we would talk about that acquired immunity um, and and I think people, that's almost a better term to me than, than uh, you know, natural immunity because that makes people think, well, no matter what I do, where I go, I, I just got, you know, superior DNA and I was born this way. Well, we don't want anybody to think that uh, because you naturally want people to get vaccinated. And and you pointed out a study, I think a Lancet study earlier um, on Sunday that documented with how Peel got hammered in the second wave and the third wave. Um, essential workplaces were still open. People were still having to go, you know, from point A to point B on, on commutes, on crowded buses. That's, you know, as, as unfortunate as that is in the second and third wave in those communities, Mississauga, Brampton, that probably fortified the level of acquired immunity in those communities to make the fourth wave well, well, just, just less, uh, less notable. Definitely. And if you're seeing a pattern around the world, places that have not gotten a lot of COVID transmission in the past waves, they're, they're kind of uh, having a lot of that now. Because the, if you look at two different places, both of which have 80% immunity, but one got really shellacked in the first couple of waves and one didn't, you'll see the latter does worse because there's a lot of people that are susceptible that are that Delta is able to burn through. Delta is really the great equalizer here. And I think that with the amount of transmission we've had here in the GTA, especially Peel, I think that accounted for a lot of post-infectious or acquired immunity uh, in the community, even in the people who are unvaccinated. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. I still want everyone to get vaccinated. I would like if we could prove people that got COVID before to get just one dose, but either way, immunity is the way out of this, whether it's from the vaccine, whether it's hybrid or it's from being exposed. What do you see out there, um, I suppose I'd ask, in, in the media when it comes to the idea of boosters? I know the province is going to lay out requirements for boosters. Uh, we're already doing, uh, some healthcare workers are already doing, uh, my father-in-law in long-term care has got his third shot. But that's a real. this is a really important thing because we're going to wind the clocks back to March and have people kind of pushing over each other and confused about who should go when and even maybe arguing about who should go when. What should people, what do you see, uh, you know, in terms of a, of a requirement right now um, for people who are, who are going to, there's going to be a domino effect of people just starting to ask about it. Yeah, you know, I would say, looking at this discussion, I'd even take a bit of a step back and go, you know, what are we worried about here? You know, I think that the booster discussion has essentially made a lot of people think the vaccine doesn't work, or it's no longer effective. We have data right here in Ontario, BC and Quebec. Even people, healthcare workers who got uh, vaccinated back in January, like I did, December and January, three weeks apart, you know, you still have good protection, excellent protection against severe disease. Can I get a cold or a sore throat from uh, COVID if I get exposed? Yes, I probably can at this point. But will I be in the hospital? Very, very unlikely. And I think this is what we have lost in the discussion. I think it makes sense to exactly as you mentioned, long-term care profound immune suppression, and perhaps individuals over the age of about 60 to 65. But I think this idea of giving, for example, a 30-year-old healthcare worker um, the vaccine, Mm -hmm. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. But this has been the narrative that we've been running with, and people are really, really worried about the vaccine efficacy, and they don't have to be. They don't have to be. Dr. Suman Chakravarti, our guest on Toronto Today, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. A couple more quick hitters before we go. One, um, the the vaccine and obviously the 5 to 11s. Uh, We're still waiting. Maybe this is the week. We saw it last week approved for emergency use uh, in the United States. And and the concept is later in the week even, shots may go into arms by potentially Thursday or Friday. I know it's one thing that the U.S. were ahead of us uh, in terms of vaccine, uh, you know, uh, distribution and approval early days back in the new year and late 2020 we don't want to be too far behind them one week is fine we don't want to be struggling five six weeks after watching it work in the states and and still waiting for it i agree now i do think that the um uh approval is likely going to come pretty quickly you know at some Mm -hmm. point in november 
This is going to be a bit of a different thing, though. We have to remember that each medical intervention has a risk-benefit analysis, and the risk-benefit analysis in children is very different. And I think that uh, uh, Dr. Moore, who announced, I believe it was last week, that uh, he's not going to mandate it, this actually makes a lot of sense, because while I do think that children can benefit from the vaccine, they also have a very low risk of any kind of major complication or severity from COVID. And that's why I think because of this wide amount of vaccination we have in the province in Ontario, I can speak for the best. This has now become a personal risk assessment. And I think this is the way that it, sh it should be for this particular vaccine for this age group. I do think it should be a choice too. And uh, I I'm sure I get stick for that. You get stick for, for that opinion. But but I'll tell you, if it, we, I don't, we didn't mandate 12 to 17. We didn't. And, and if you're not going to do that with kids that might be out a little bit more, working part-time, uh, sleeping over more often, I, 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 I didn't understand that with the public messaging, especially from the city of Toronto, that just let the 12 and 17s just left them alone for the five or six months that the vaccines were available. And then there's a news cover. We got to get five to 11 done. Hurry up. We got to get five to 11. That, ma that makes people suspicious. That makes them worry at their core. I agree. And I think that the, the thing is that I get it. Listen, I have two little kids third one on the way in a couple of months. So I get the uh, anxiety of having your kids sick. But I think that when you take a step back and look at the situation, if you look across Canada, uh, in all of 2020, there was something like 200 kids, uh, if maybe a bit more admitted to hospital. And the majority of them had things like obesity, uh, neurological issues and respiratory issues. I think it's important for us to target the vaccine to those children target it to people who want to get it. But as a widespread type of intervention, I think it doesn't make a lot of sense. And small risks like the potential risk of myocarditis all of a sudden becomes important, especially when the benefit from the vaccine in that age group is very could is likely very small. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, thanks for all that straight talk. I'm glad your Halloween went well uh, with your family, and uh, we've got many, many better days uh, and weeks ahead. Thanks for sharing your insights with our listeners. I always appreciate it. Always great to be here. Thanks for having me. Take care. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, we were talking about the tomahawk chop earlier. A lot of people reacting and they saying, well, listen, aren't there bigger issues for Native Americans? Sure, there are. But why can't we do both at the same time? Uh, there is that Dr. Eric Cam, economics professor and often guest of the Roy Green show right here on the Chorus Radio Network, 640 as well, between two and five o'clock. Dr. Cam joins me. Now, wh what do you make of the chop? We played that clip 1991. This was getting talked about by Pat O'Brien before the Braves Twins World Series. Um, we're not much further along as many advances as, as we have. And yeah, there's bigger issues. I'd rather have clean drinking water than worry about what 40,000 MLB fans are doing. But there's no reason we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, that's the thing. Good morning, everybody. Um, the tomahawk chop has been around a long time. And where did it emanate from? Some people say Florida State University. I'm not sure. The problem is, is that, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I know that there's that famous uh, religious saying that you've got to accept the things you cannot change and and work around them. Now, I'm not saying you can't change the tomahawk chop, but I just think it's going to be very, very hard to mandate getting rid of the tomahawk chop. I mean, it's been around a long time and it's really hard to get 40 or 50,000 people to start or stop doing anything as much as I'm glad that they've stopped doing the wave. And I kind of equate it to what goes on in a lecture hall. If you really want to get a lecture hall quiet, I can say to someone, be quiet a hundred times and it'll mean nothing. If another student turns to yeah. a student and says, you know what, shut up, then they sit down and they're quiet. And I think that's going to be the way the tomahawk chop disappears when enough people turn to the person beside them and say, sit down and stop doing that. It's enough already. That'll be your chance of getting rid of it. I can tell you at European soccer matches, that's what started to happen. It, you still have what I'd call leakage once in a while and isolated incidents, uh, but you don't. Ha it's not like it used to be. I watched an England-Germany match in Charleroi, Belgium in at Euro 2000, and the second a black English player touched, uh, touched the ball, You'd you'd look to you'd hear from one end you'd hear um, put to put it bluntly monkey noises it was horrific and that's only two decades ago but if eventually you know enough people turn and say that ain't going to happen here um, you know it, it it's absolutely unacceptable hopefully but when you've got the when you've got the organization encouraging it when you've got the organist playing the you know the sounds of the chant getting everybody revved up you're never going to change it the Braves don't want to change it clearly. I don't think they want to change it. They've had no propensity to change their name. They've had no propensity to change 
the behavior in the ballpark. And then you can't get rid of the X factor, Greg. And the X factor is you've got 40,000 people that are well lubricated sitting watching a sporting match. And, you know, it's funny with sports because I, you know me, I love my sports probably more Mm. than the next person. But isn't it funny how sports can remind us sometimes at how far we've come and yet how far we haven't come. When I hear these stories about these monkey noises or I Mm -hmm. see this, this idiot on the ice make a, a reference to a banana. I just shake my head and I and it really reminds me that we've come so far, but there's just so much farther to go. And sports sometimes is a wonderful mirror of where we are as a society. Yeah, it, it is that. Um, the G20, uh, they meet. There's going to be a climate summit now happening in uh, in Scotland. In fact, I'm seeing pictures of it right now. They've got 30,000 people there. Last I checked, there aren't 30,000 world leaders. So I'm not sure why, you know, you can't just have the world leaders there. Regardless of that, um, you know, you've probably, and you speak to your class, I'm sure. I know you and Roy have talked about it. This balancing act is going to be really tricky. You've got the leaders of the world's richest economies. They want to pursue efforts to limit global warming. A, that'll let our grandkids' grandkids actually, I don't know, live. But it also, you know, it comes with a political cost and an economic cost. There has to be a balancing act. And and sometimes we're not sure whether world leaders are doing something because they think it's popular or they're doing something because it ends up being the right thing to do. And, you know, to be honest, environmental policy, as costly as it seems, that's no different. I think environmental policy uh, is really going to be the motion of the day for the next couple of years. And I'll tell you why. Uh, We always talk about the environment. It always plays a central role as we lead up to elections. But a lot of experts, and I'm not one of them on elections, say that it is wonderful fodder before the election. But when people step into a voting booth, what they do is they're worried about their well-being, their economic and financial solvency. So it ends up as a back burner issue on election day. And I think that it's going to be something like that over the next couple of years. Don't get me wrong. I think the environment's very important. I have children. One day I'd like to be a Zeta and have them be able to drink the water and breathe the air. That said, we are coming out of the greatest economic downfall since the Great Depression. And we can't ignore the fact that more people than ever, as Roy Green was saying yesterday, are $200 away from financial insolvency. So now look at these two competing things you've got going together. You have people saying we need clean air and we need clear water, but you've got thousands and thousands of homeowners saying, you know what I need before that? I need to feed my children and pay my rent. And that's going to be the great tug of war right now. Are people saying, of course, we think that's important. Of course, we, we want water and air and highways and all of these things. But you know what I need today? Dinner. I need dinner for my children. And I think if you look at past trends, that's going to win on things like voting days. I see this story yesterday about uh, these Caribbean islands that want Canadians to come flooding back. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, Barbados, St. Lucia, Antigua, and they're struggling. They're at 25, 30 percent unemployment because they count, rely on tourists. So they'll do anything to get us there. And I'm thinking, yeah, like like because we stop flying, because we stop traveling, because we stop, you know, spending money excessively on vacations that probably aren't great for the climate. Um, but but you do it because you want that experience in life. It, it, there's always a ripple effect and it's it's rippled into these islands and they've suffered tremendously because North Americans have, haven't been traveling there. Well, you don't even have to look at the islands. I mean, I do sympathize for these people that rely on tourism as the bulk of their economy. But look at an economy like Canada. Look at an economy like Toronto. We've been decimated yeah. by our tourism dollars the last couple of years. I don't think people until this pandemic realized that those billions of dollars that came from Americans especially, but worldwide in general, that's a big, big part of our economy, a big part Mm -hmm. of our financial solvency, a huge part of what restaurants and bars rely on, and it just hasn't been there. And so you don't have to go very far to see the effects of what happens when tourism effectively shuts down for a short to medium period of time. You have a lot of people relying on those dollars. And, you know, Mm. we can't all be Elon Musk. I'm sure a lot of people saw in the news that he is inching up toward being worth a trillion dollars. Now, Greg, when you think that the world, you know, the world is worth $91 trillion and this guy's worth one of those trillion, 
I mean, it's an incredible number. There's only 16 countries in the world Elon Musk can't buy yeah. on his Visa card. So, you know, one thing the pandemic has forced us to do is look at priorities, look at money and say, all right, when it stops, number one, what is the effect? And number two, what is the effect of where those dollars are no longer coming from? And one of them is tourism. One of them is tourism. Uh, I thought you were going to say not all of us can be Eli Manning, but you can watch the Manning cast tonight with uh, Peyton and Eli. And uh, it's just it's made the Monday night games more more entertaining. I can't recommend it. I know you got Giants Chiefs tonight. It's a bit of a dog, but watch that game just to see the Manning. What see the older brother pick on the younger brother. Nothing's better. I never had a brother, so you, you, you know, gotta I gotta watch tell it. you, I have a brother. Uh, he's a good guy. But getting back to these more famous brothers, um, if you're listening out there and you're one of the people behind Monday Night Football, this is about the best innovation I've seen <laughs> in a long time. <laughs> I and, know. You know, you and I, we remember I, that stupid glowing puck. But you know what? I'm not mad at Fox for the glowing puck because at least yeah. they tried something. I don't want to mention three letters that may be C, B, and C that haven't tried anything innovative since the year of the small potato. But you know what? Fox tried the puck. It didn't work, but at least they tried. This thing is actually really interesting. It's really good. They bring on people. Tom Brady came on last yeah. week. Marshawn Lynch comes on and talks about M&Ms or Smarties or Skittles or whatever the hell. But you know what? At least it's different. It's new. It's innovative. And, and at least for sports broadcasting, I just applaud them for trying something other than putting two people in a booth and talking for two and a half hours. Different is good. Different is good in 2021. I got to leave it there. Thanks for the time today. Stay healthy, Greg. Okay, so it's Parkdale Collegiate. It's Friday. A lot of people going in costumes, right? High school, you would do that. Uh, my son went uh, in a costume on Friday. Bandages. He said he was the invisible man. I'm like, don't be invisible when it comes to putting up your hand and, and speaking your mind. That's what school is for. But this happens at Parkdale Collegiate, where a teacher has now been relieved of in-school duties. We don't know where this is going to go. He shows up Friday in blackface. Not great. Uh, teacher. The principal says once they were made aware of the incident, her name is Julie Ardell, they took immediate steps. But how'd the guy teach in the class for an entire class? How does the guy end up at an assembly? That doesn't sound like immediate steps to me. And um, it's it's really problematic on a lot of levels. Uh, a, a report's been filed with the TDSB. He was having, um, let's put it bluntly, a hell of a fall when it comes to a number of different issues. Uh, but Per their reporting and responding to racism and hate incidents involving or impacting students in schools procedure, there has been a report filed. Um, a parent who has started a petition on anti-black racism at TDSB regarding the teacher who, who wore blackface is Layla Sarangi, and she joins us now. Layla, it's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for me this morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, ha I'm doing good. I'm happy to. When did this uh, cross your um, mental, emotional radar? When did you start hearing about this? You know, I started hearing about it on Friday, um, Friday later in the day. Um, and it was it was awful. It was awful. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Um, but yeah, I was parents of um, children who were in that class reached out to me. So, and when I say, you know, the principal is documenting that, well, they took action immediately, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm questioning that timeline somewhat, and I'm not doing it, you know, um, with, uh, with, with rancor. I just, I, I want to know what, what, what's defined as immediate steps, because he taught a class. He's still there when there's some form of assembly during the day. That's, that's not, that doesn't feel Im immediate is you, you see the, the, the blackface at 910, and that guy goes home, whether he's a teacher or not. Exactly. I mean, uh, immediate shouldn't be subjective in that kind of way. Uh, but the kids are saying, I mean, the one of the parents who reached out, you know, her child in that class took 11 photos of this teacher teaching like that. The kids are saying that there was after that 930 a.m. business class that he taught, there was another um not assembly but i've heard it's a it was a grade nine mentor mentee gathering but the point is he was around other children apparently other adults and they did nothing this was left to the kids who i have to commend i mean for me the the mm -hmm. biggest lining here the silver lining would be that these kids were not bystanders you know they they did the hard work of taking photos and taking it up to the administration, to the adults and getting some action done. It's unfair. It shouldn't have been left to them, but that they did that was amazing.
Layla Serangi is our guest, uh, a parent who started a petition uh, regarding this teacher who wore blackface to Parkdale Collegiate on uh, on Friday. This is from Joanna Lavoie's story. Uh, the students then went to the gym, reading from it, the students then went to the gym for a Halloween assembly. Uh, the teacher wore the blackface to the gathering. It didn't seem like any other teachers were confronting him about it. He was in there with 100 students and other teachers. I think the other teachers took it really chill, way too chill, to be honest. And uh, Behan Farhardi, who's been on our show before, made the great point. Can we, you know, end up talking about the other teachers? As you said, the students should be commended because teachers act, tell students and the concept is in high school, you start learning about accountability. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw things up. What are you going to do not to do it a second time and to hold others accountable? And if your educators aren't doing that in your own school, we got a problem. We have a big problem. And that's one of the reasons why we started this petition, because this speaks to the culture of the TDSB, the culture of deep ingrained anti-black racism, anti-racism, and it's connected to anti-indigenous racism, right? This is how the TDS, this is the culture of the TDSB, like you said at the top. How could he, you know, get from home, travel like that, get in through those front doors and spend a morning in school and nobody says anything? This is you know, not isolated. This is not about this one individual. This is about the whole system and how uh, unsafe it is for our kids in that mm. system. It's a weird one with kids. And I think, would you say that sometimes, sometimes the concept of, how would I put it? Yeah, just plain being politically correct, being woke. Sometimes, especially with kids' costumes, it goes a little bit too far. It can go a little bit too far. But blackface is it, it is a different story. It's one thing if you want to look like a person bigger than yourself. It's one person if you want to, you know, be a, you know a, a, a different person from a different era. This is the one that you just have to know. And I think parents have done a good job educating their kids at a young age. You know, that's great that you love um, the weekend, but we can't make your face black if you're a white kid and you can't go as the weekend. I don't make the rules, but those are the rules. Yeah, and we should, I mean, we should all know that, right? And I know that in other um, regions, I've got friends whose kids go to the Halton Regent School and they said that, you know, they were sent home um, in the days leading up to Halloween with guidelines, right? You can't, about cultural appropriation and about the harm that can be perpetuated when you are dressing up like that. And we, I didn't see any messaging. I have three children in mm -hmm. uh, schools in Parkdale, not at that school, but we didn't get any messaging like that coming home in the days leading up. Like, you know, this is our collective responsibility, but the, te the school system you know, um, they have that responsibility. They hold that responsibility, not only to tell the kids, but to also make sure that the teachers who are coming in into that classroom uh, and responsible um, know better. And there's no excuse for not knowing. Apparently, he's, you know, said, apparently he got defensive when the kids asked him, what are you dressed up as? And he apparently was defensive and he apparently said, I didn't have a costume and so I did this. Like acting like he didn't yeah. know, but yeah, how could he not know in this day and age with everything that's been with the whole reckoning we've had in the past, especially year and a half around anti-black racism uh, in our society? Like this is connected to that bigger picture and there's no way that he didn't know. I don't believe it. And if he really didn't know, then that's such a huge failure of the TDSB. That's such a huge failure. What do you and other parents want to be the eventual outcome here? Well, we want a zero tolerance policy on a zero tolerance policy on any kind of racism and hate, but especially anti-black racism and anti-indigenous racism. There is there's no way that the onus should have been on the kids. This should have never gotten to this point. So that's got to be number one priority. But we also need, like, you know, when they're hiring and holding and doing professional development with students, like those, you know, this all needs to be built into those practices. We need, a, like, a diverse workforce. We need transparency around those things. Um, when these kinds of incidences come to the school, like, they should be reported publicly 
And if kids, you know, feel something like this is really overt, I'll say this was. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. It, it is. I, 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 I would push back and ask, let me ask how you but how do you vet this? If you can't if you ask someone in an interview coming out of teacher's college, will you ever do this? People will say no. Like it's it's really hard to, uh, you know, to to sort of suss this stuff out in the hiring process, isn't it? No, it's not. I mean, you can you can ask people, what does diversity uh, inclusion mean to you? How would you create a safe classroom that's trauma informed? You know, what are the things you're going to do in place? How do you understand your own implicit biases? Do you do that self-reflection practice? Are you open to get it, getting, getting feedback from people that you might not like? Like, how willing are you to change? There's lots. There is lots around um, human resources that can be done where you can, as you said, suss this out. And where <laughs> someone shows potential, if they don't, you know, know everything, but they're mm. showing the potential, then that's where professional development comes in. And you do the training because uh, they are out there, right? They're, I, I lead that work for my own organization. Mm. Like they're out there. And then you hold people accountable when you are doing supervision and you track and you mm. monitor and at the first sight of something not right, you hold that person accountable so that it never gets to this point. I appreciate you coming on, and I appreciate uh, the fact that that you know your kids found this important enough to talk about it with you and and have honest conversations. And and again, yeah, there's that really big gap between you know what might be a teachable moment and and what is something that that you just go, no, there's there's not a lesson to be learned here. There needs to be accountability. Thank you very much for the time, and and I hope we get to follow up on this uh, in the days and weeks to come. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. The Chicago Blackhawks are back at home tonight. They played against the Maple Leafs that Wednesday night. They started that game about an hour after uh, the Kyle Beach interview aired on TSN with Rick Westhead. So it's possible. It's possible that some of the fans barely knew what was going on with their team. And some may have shut it out and said, we paid good money. We're here. We want to see the Leafs and Hawks tonight. Original six battle. It might be a different atmosphere tonight in Chicago to talk about that and some of the parameters of what we know since Wednesday and and even what we expect may happen today. Very happy to have our next guest on, longtime sports broadcaster. But but we both are, so that makes us both feel old, and we both look at least 10 years younger than our actual age. So why did I say long time? He's a senior writer with the Athletic Coast of the Athletic NHL podcast, but he's covered the Sens in Ottawa for a good chunk of time. He's in Chicago right now. He is Ian Mendez. Ian, great to have you on. I know you had a harrowing day of travel yesterday. You were... You, it sounded like you were just basically uh, hanging on to the wing of the plane, uh, let alone being on the plane to get to Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I'll tell you, Greg, it was my first time back traveling in the COVID era and uh, felt like it was a little bit like Tom Hanks in the terminal there, stuck <laughs> stuck, in, uh, stuck at the Montreal airport for six hours. They canceled the flight. But uh, listen, here in Chicago, and like you said, yeah, curious to see the atmosphere in the United Center tonight, given... All the stuff floating around uh, this, this hockey team. I remember watching the first um, Penn State football game after everything had broken. It was on TV with, with Jerry Sandusky and, and Joe Paterno. And you're like, what's that going to be like? It, it'll have that eerie feel to it. Um, there have been some linkage between that scenario and this scenario because some of it is, well, there's a perpetrator and some of it, some of it is obviously about who knew about the perpetrator, who didn't do enough or anything about the perpetrator. But, but yeah, I wonder that for Blackhawks fans. There's a lot of Blackhawks fans I know, and I'm sure you do as well. They're really, really embarrassed about their hockey team um, and, and just have such a, I don't even think it's a mixed reaction. They're just, they're, it's a combination of furious and sad like the rest of us. Yeah, and I think, look, and, and every sports fan has their right to, you know, if they want to cheer, continue to cheer and say, you know what, we're here to just support, uh, you know, Alex DeBrincat and Kirby Doc and this young group of guys, like, this is what we want to do. I get that. But I don't know that that's going to be the sentiment for the majority of people. I think they're really embarrassed. I think they're angry. They're ashamed. They're all those things. And that's the one thing you don't want as a sports fan, right? Regardless of you know, what's going on. You always want to be optimistic. You always want to be hopeful. And it's almost impossible to have those two emotions right now. I think if you're a fan of Chicago. And so uh, I don't know what's going to happen tonight. I do think I do agree with you Mm. that on Wednesday night, when they played the Maple Leafs, it was very much, it was like back to back, right? That, that Kyle Beach interview aired at, I think it's at whatever it was, six o'clock Eastern time. And that game was, was shortly thereafter. 
Uh, I don't know that everyone had, a time, had the time to watch the interview, absorb it, understand the consequences. And, and so this is the first game tonight where they're going to have to deal with it. And forget about mm. the fact that they're a winless team on the ice. That is almost secondary. It is what has gone on with, uh, with Kyle Beach and certainly at the forefront. And I, I'm just very, very curious to see how this all plays out this evening. Well, you and I will talk about Gary Bettman talking today, Kevin Sheveldayoff talking today, Ian Mendez kind of to join us. Uh, he's traveled from Ottawa to Chicago for Sens Blackhawks tonight. My struggle with, with Joel Quenville last week and probably every member of what we describe as, as the Blackhawks senior management team, Ian, is um, I understand. I'm not defending um, them not doing anything. I get them thinking we we should make this person accountable, uh, certainly do a ton after, but I get not wanting to derail the goals of the franchise. I think there was truly a way to do both at that point and either suspend Brad Aldrich, take him out, away out of the environment of working with the team while still focusing on the Stanley Cup, and then that's your entire focus. The second that, that Stanley Cup final ends, that's your entire focus. How do, you, how do you view it? If you could go back in time and tell them, this is, this is a true method of accountability, what do you tell them? Well, I think what's really upsetting is the idea that they thought that this was a quote-unquote distraction. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like somebody being assaulted sexually, on, you know, basically within the walls of your, your organization was a distraction. And I think that's what's upsetting. That's what's troubling. And I agree with you that they could have done both things. It, 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 they almost made it seem like it was mutually exclusive. Like either we win the Stanley Cup or we call this guy out. And it's like, well, no, you could have done both. And I think here's what I think is what's really, really vexing. This was the video coach. Okay, this wasn't a guy who you would look at this and say he was an integral part of that team. But and here's where I'm I'm, I'm going with yeah. it. It makes you wonder if they were willing to fall on the the sword, so to speak, for that guy. What else were they willing to cover up for more prominent people in the organization? That's what's upsetting. That's what's vexing. That's what's upsetting. They 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 were willing. Like this guy basically. If, if, let's put it this way. If they suspended Brad Aldrich after they knocked out San Jose, they, they took on Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the Chicago Blackhawks and the players would have not known what to do and they would have been uh, the, the bright lights of the Stanley Cup final would have been too much? No. They would have probably been fine if we still won the game in, uh, series in six games. And so that's what's really upsetting is that they allowed this guy to continue to have his job and then obviously to not uh, do anything afterwards and to not alert any future employers. It's this. It's just despicable and disgusting, and and I'm glad that there was a day of reckoning. It's just unfortunate it took 11 years to get here. Ian Mendez, uh, our guest on uh, Global News Radio in Toronto today with Greg Brady on uh, 640 Toronto. Do you look and say Joel Quenville gets what he gets from Gary Bettman last week? Maybe more so because, you know, they have this guy pinned down. They could properly investigate him. They know he needs to leave the organization and they write him a glowing letter of recommendation. And he goes and seemingly reoffends. He's been convicted of a sex crime uh, at a high school in Michigan. But he also was at Miami of Ohio afterwards uh, with that college hockey program and left within, you know, the space of a year. And um, and people can leave their jobs. That's fine. But but there's just too much there to make people think, did something awful go on at the at, at Miami, Ohio University? I think it's that Quenville writes the letter, Ian, and uh, and gives him a glowing recommendation. They basically had this guy trapped, if you will, with with evidence against him and, and didn't utilize it. Yeah, and, and I think what's, what's really upsetting is that uh, if we know how these stories often play themselves out, uh, that young that young kid in Michigan who was 16 years old who was another victim is probably not the only other one. That there have been other victims that are too afraid to come out and speak, and that's where you hope that uh, you know Kyle Beach's interview with Rick Westhead last week is the tipping point for a lot of people to say, you know what, uh, that happened to me, and this is what happened, and this is how it like. So that I think is absolutely. I, like I guess my point is I don't know. And again, I don't know when Joel Quenville found out that of this case in Michigan involving a 16-year-old boy. Um, but how could you have slept at night? All, all of you in that room in the Chicago Blackhawks, and, and whether or not you were deemed, uh, Kevin Shuttledayoff was deemed to be not in a position of power, you're still an adult in the room, and you didn't do anything. And, and, uh, and that's the thing that, that I wonder. How did you sleep at night uh, over the, the, the last number of months or years, or however long you've known, 
does that happen? How could you, I just don't know how you would be able to look yourself in the mirror and be comfortable knowing that you probably could have stopped that and did nothing about it because winning a championship meant more to you than uh, than somebody else's safety. You and I know with what we do, and I think even fans go through this when they, uh, you know, f- fans of the sport um, address it to, to maybe lesser fans, and there's always pushback. There's pushback about how many games these guys play. There's pushback about lifestyle. There's pushback about concussions and saying, well, you don't, or fighting. You don't understand, you don't play, or you didn't play. There's very little of it now. I haven't seen much of a uh, defensive, you will, not for obviously uh, Brad Aldrich's behavior, but the systemic uh, issues within the sport itself. I've, I've often looked at it, Ian, and I think it feels like the most exclusionary sport. Um, do you feel that way about hockey? Like, we love it at our core. It's been good to you. It's been good to me. It's been good to a lot of our listeners, whether we played or watched or whatever. But but that it isn't like the other sports. It feels like it, it pushes out and discourages people coming in from the outside into its inner circle. Yeah, and I, and I think, Greg, I think the, the, the problem with the sport is that it's always been we over me, right? So if you're an individual, you're not really uh, encouraged to speak out or stand out because you're being a distraction or you're being, uh, you're being selfish. And I, I think that's, that's something that we have to change in the sport. And I think what's really upsetting too is if you think about what Akeem Aliou said, and uh, this was now two years ago, roughly, when, when he came out with what he said, yeah. uh, you know, Bill Peters said, we all thought, we all looked at each other in 2019 and said, well, we've done it. We've reached hockey's day of reckoning. Now, anybody who's been involved in, in sort of, uh, you know, maybe nefarious or homophobic or racist or misogynist behavior and language in the past is going to be held accountable. What happened? Nothing happened. Two years later, it took two years for this Tal Beach thing to come out, and it makes you wonder what else is underneath the hood. And I think it's really important to, to know what you said, because I played hockey as a kid, Greg. I've, I've covered this game. I don't feel like I've been the victim of any of those things that I just sort of mentioned, but I know that it's there and it's wrong and it's wrong to not call it out. It's wrong to not try to make the sport more uh, inclusive, like you said, and it's got a history of, of being very, very uh, elitist and very, it, it is. You're right when you say it is a small uh, window that, uh, that allows people into it. And that's what we got to change about the sport. And it's got to be the men that do it. It's got to be the men that changed this game. And I, I, if I ever hear that stupid phrase, oh, he's a good hockey man. Yeah. Man, I, yeah. I don't want to care. Let's, let's flush that from the language and let's just get good, good people uh, that do it. And let's get men to put women in, in positions of power. Let's get men to put uh, people of, uh, of color in power. Let's get men to put, uh, like, it's got to change. The, the power structure has to change. It's been too long. It's been an echo chamber. And, and men just, just kind of quietly sit by. The Blackhawk story, Greg, the best example of men just sitting by, uh, standing by, and just letting stuff go by because they don't want to, yeah, you don't call it out. That's not what you do in hockey. You don't call things out. Well, it's time to, to start blowing the whistle here and, uh, and, and making some changes. No, nah, you, na- you nailed it. And John Tortorella said it last week. There's nine guys sitting in that room. It's hard to believe one doesn't stand up and go, guys, this is wrong. And, and, uh, and it, takes, it, it just takes one person sometimes to point to the other eight and say, shouldn't we reconsider this? I got to leave it there. Thank you very much for getting up early for me. Ottawa, Chicago tonight. We'll be reading your work uh, on The Athletic. Your great colleague, Katie Strang, obviously has been a must-follow through this. And uh, great to connect and talk on the radio. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, have a great day. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We've got a live show tomorrow, obviously, on Tuesday, November 2nd, ready for you, 5.30 to 9 a.m. Myself, Sheba Siddiqui, Dave Bradley, and Loretta Milnovich will join us tomorrow. Uh, We hope you can listen. If not, we'll be back right here where you found us. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Have a great Monday.